This week, we leave Jericho and Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus behind as we turn our attention to Luke 19. Open your Bibles to Luke 19, verse 28 is where we're going to pick up. And it says in Luke 19, verse 28, that after Jesus had said this, you remember last week we looked at a parable that Jesus told, a parable of some that were faithful to Jesus and some that were unfaithful to Jesus and some that didn't want Jesus to be ruler in their life. And we talked about how the same applies today, that there are those that want no part of Jesus, some that are very outspoken about their desire to rule their own life, those that look upon us, that put our faith and trust in Jesus as this stupid, rubes, believers of mythology, they, they're enlightened. And those that I spoke of last week, the likes of Dawkins and Hinchins and Singer and others, are, they are the enlightened ones. We are the ones that haven't found real truth yet. We are the unenlightened. And so they don't need God. They don't want God. They want to live life on their own secular humanistic terms in a, in a belief that all of this that we experience came about by accident. Um, talk about rubes and idiots, but um, that's another message. We move from that parable of there is judgment coming for those that refuse the rule of God. There will be an accounting for the faithfulness for those that have claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, whether they were truly followers or not will be seen in the faithfulness of that which God has given them stewardship. And so it says, after Jesus had said this, in the aftermath of this parable, he went on ahead and going up to Jerusalem, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of us, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one's ever ridden, untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went, and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And that was all that was required. And they brought it to Jesus. And they threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on the colt. And as they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road ahead of them. The first thing that stands out in this narrative portion right here is the sending of the disciples to retrieve the colt on which Jesus will enter Jerusalem. Jesus sends two disciples, and when we think of disciples, we typically think of the 12, we think of those, 11 of whom will eventually be known as apostles. But the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus had many disciples that provided for him throughout the course of his ministry from the likes of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Bethany who always opened their home to Jesus whenever he came their way, right up to Joseph of Arimathea who provided the tomb in which Jesus' body was placed. On this occasion, what he needed was an unridden donkey. And so Jesus sent two of his disciples. We would assume those were two of the 12. He sent two of them to get the donkey. He told them where to find the donkey and that when they took it, 
if they were questioned as to why they were taking the donkey, to tell those asking, the Lord needs it. And so they did as they were instructed. They found the donkey exactly as Jesus said they would find it. They were questioned by the owners of the donkey. Why are you taking our donkey? They answered accordingly, and apparently the answer sufficed, which begs the question, why would someone who owns a valued piece of property, a, a, a young colt, a donkey that's never been ridden before, why would they allow that valued piece of property to be taken with no protest whatsoever? Just, just the question and the answer, because the Lord needs it. The individual to whom these words are individuals, the owners, it says in the text, the individuals, the persons who owned this donkey, were obviously disciples of the Lord too, and quite willing to surrender that which the Lord needed them. Whenever they were, whenever they asked, why are you taking our donkey? Whenever the disciples said, the Lord needs it, they said, okay. They knew who, they knew who the Lord was, and if the Lord needed it, they were perfectly willing to. To surrender and what we see here is the pattern of surrender it's the pattern of surrender that we all should be embracing if the Lord says he needs it a disciple surrenders whatever the Lord requests and, and bear in mind the Lord who spoke the universe who spoke all of creation into existence can acquire what he needs without any help from any of us but he gives us the opportunity to follow him to take part in his work it is the purpose for which he created us to live in relationship with him and to find our purpose and service to our king in his kingdom a loyal subject as i said last week a kingdom patriot willingly anxious to surrender, surrendering anything and everything in service to the king. That's the pattern of surrender that the Bible paints for us as believers. What stands in direct opposition to this pattern of surrender is the problem of self-centeredness. We've talked about this a great deal, but we can't talk about it too much because it's that with which we struggle day in and day out. Too many people have adapted, adopted an understanding of God in which he exists to help us realize our full potential. Too many have bought into the notion that life is all about me. Life's all about my dreams. Life's all about my goals that I want to see fulfilled. Living the best life that I can possibly live during my years on this earth. And God and the power of his Holy Spirit are at my disposal to see these things accomplished. Too many preachers have adopted a very me-centered theology that places individuals and their desires ahead of God and his will. It's a good message. If you want to attract the masses, it makes for a great motivational speech, but it is not particularly helpful when God calls you to surrender the dreams and the goals of this world, those things that you've held so dear that others have encouraged you to pursue, when God calls you to surrender 
anything and everything, including your goals and dreams, that kind of massly accepted message is not helpful at all when God calls us to lay everything down for his eternal purposes. The pattern of a disciple's surrender is to place everything at the disposal of the Lord so that when God says he needs it, when you hear in your spirit the Lord needs it, the disciple's mind is already made up. That which the Lord requests is already surrendered. If your mind is already surrendered and someone starts untying your donkey and taking it away, and you go, hey, what are you doing? That's my donkey. And they go, the Lord needs it. You go, oh, okay, no problem. Go on and take it. It's the Lord's already. At the point that you have surrendered all that you have and all that you are, at the point that you have surrendered every material possession that you own, at the point that you've surrendered every dollar in your bank account, at the point that you've surrendered all your dreams and goals, at the point that you've surrendered everything to God, when God says, I need this from you, then the response to God is, okay, it's yours. I've already surrendered it to you. Just You show me the way you want it directed. Where do you want me to deliver the donkey? I'll make sure it gets there on time. Whatever you ask of me, it's yours. The two disciples return with the donkey, which has been surrendered by its owner. Jesus mounts the colt, and he proceeds to Jerusalem. And in so doing, Jesus once again fulfills the words of God's prophets. This time it's Zechariah, who prophesied during Israel's captivity and their eventual return to the promised land under the reign of Cyrus of Persia, having been taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 586, the Babylonians were eventually defeated by the Persians not too awfully long after that, 40 plus years in 539. So about 538, Cyrus has a, a much more lenient position with regard to the peoples that are under his rule, under that Persian empire practicing their own religions. So he allows the Jews to go back to their homeland and begin to rebuild the temple and the, and the city eventually. In Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, Zechariah is prophesying into the future. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Once again, clearly messianic, considered messianic by the people of Zechariah's day, considered messianic during Jesus' time and in the retrospect of 2,000 years, clearly messianic to us today. The entrance by the king riding on a donkey is the image of a king making a peacetime entrance. A warrior king, a king who's returned from battle and now is coming back to his city with all the loot that he's collected in battle, would ride in on a stallion. He'd ride in on a war horse. But this picture of the king riding in on the donkey is a, is a peacetime image. And where the NIV refers to the king riding in on the donkey is 
lowly. Most other translations use the word humble, which I prefer to describe the king coming. He is righteous. He's vindicated. He's humble. This is the picture of the Messiah painted by Zechariah 500 years before Jesus arrived on the scene. And so the disciples placed their cloaks on the back of the donkey to provide a saddle of sorts for Jesus. And then others placed their cloaks on the ground for the donkey to step so that the donkey carrying royalty doesn't even touch the ground. And verse 37 says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They pick up the the chant, the shout of of King David, Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We talked about the, the miracles that Jesus performed and all that the people had seen. They take up the shout. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because they have ascribed this great authority seen in the miraculous healings of Jesus in his teachings, in his encounter with the religious leaders, they've ascribed great authority to Jesus. And so again, they're looking for the arrival of the Messiah. They're anticipating that this this one that has such great power to do the things he does surely has the power to stand against the Roman government. As you descend from Mount Olivet, the walled city of Jerusalem comes into view. And so the chorus begins as the city comes into view. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Because there, there are others traveling to Jerusalem, you got to realize this route that they're traveling is one that people are joining. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the closer you get to downtown, the more the people get on the interstate, you know, when you're going to work. Well, that's what's happening here as they're going to Jerusalem. They're all going to arrive at roughly the same time to begin the celebration of the Passover week. And so as he gets closer to Jerusalem, the crowds are swelling as more and more. Some from Jericho have joined him in the travel. They've been planning to go to Jerusalem for Passover week. And so when Jesus comes through, waiting for Jesus, the news that the Messiah, this Jesus, this rabbi, this healer is coming through their town, headed up for the Passover week, they wait for him and they travel with him. Others join as they travel along. So now the crowd around him, those traveling with him, are beginning to swell. As the disciples take up, this chant blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord others join in it becomes you know one doing as others are doing once again they're viewing jesus as this one that is going to provide them the liberty that i spoke of those in north korea so desperately needing the interesting thing here is that jesus does absolutely nothing to dissuade them they're declaring him the messiah he's riding in on the cult. The, all of this is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy, and he is doing absolutely nothing. He's, he's told the disciples in the past. He's told people he's healed in the past. Don't share this with anyone. It's not my time yet, but this is his time, and so now he's not dissuading anyone. In verse 39, the Pharisees who are traveling in the crowd, there are some religious leaders, some Pharisees that don't live in Jerusalem that are traveling with this crowd as well. They're alarmed, and so they say to Jesus, Teacher, 
rebuke your disciples. And Jesus responded, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, I will not silence nor rebuke the truth that they proclaim. They may be disappointed that my rule is not what they imagine. They may not be happy with the things that are going to go down once I reach Jerusalem. But right now, they do not err in proclaiming me as the one sent by God as the Messiah. In verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The lack of understanding on the part of the disciples, of the disciples their lack of understanding of Jesus is reflected in Jesus' mood and in his words. The disciples are proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But as Jesus views the city, it's not great joy and celebration in which he's taking part. He looks at the city and he begins to weep. Jerusalem was the capital city of a once great nation, one God intended to be great, the city of David, the place where the temple of God resided, a place of such historical importance to the people of God, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. But now it was a place of cold religious ritual. And Jesus knows what lies ahead as he makes his entrance. He knows the cries of joy and adulation will turn to calls for crucifixion pretty quickly over the course of the coming week. He knows the rejection which awaits. And so he weeps, not for himself, not for the rejection that he's going to endure, but for the self-destruction of the people of Jerusalem, the self-destruction they bring upon themselves. If, if only you had known what would bring you peace, but now... That time has passed. You've rejected it completely. For three years, you as leadership would have nothing to do with it, and you've led the people in the same direction. Jesus came, sent by God, to bring reconciliation and peace to humankind, but the Jewish religious leaders would have none of it, and they led the people away from God and the peace that he offered. And so, doing, they pronounced judgment upon themselves. Jerusalem had been besieged, and destroyed once before by Nebuchadnezzar. Under his orders, the Babylonians had burned the temple to the ground along with all the other structures inside the city walls, and then they had torn the walls of the city, not leaving one stone upon another. The city was rebuilt. It was rewalled as the Jews returned under the leadership of Nehemiah and Hezekiah during the time of Cyrus of Persia. But in 70 AD, 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, the Jews rebelled against Rome. And once again, the city was besieged, this time by the general 
Titus, sent there by the Caesar. The temple was destroyed, the walls were demolished, and thousands were slaughtered inside the, the city. Slaughtered in the process, men, women, and children killed without mercy. Jesus saw the current rebellion of the people against his leadership, and he saw the future rebellion. Those who rejected God now, those who would rebel against Rome, and he saw what was going to take place. He knew the things that were going to happen, and it moved him to tears. And in the tears of Jesus, what we see is the compassion of God. Jesus loved the Jewish people. He loved his people. He still does today. Jesus loves all mankind. That's John 3.16, that God so loved the world. His love is not restricted to just one group of people. He loves all people. And he came to bring peace and reconciliation, that with which his church is still tasked today. That's why we exist today as the body of Christ. Though Jesus has ascended to heaven and taken up his position at the right hand of God, we remain as the body of Christ in the world today, and our task and our purpose is that same with which Jesus came when he came to bring the good news that there is peace to be realized, there is release from the bondage of sin to be had, there is reconciliation with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But when people willingly choose to reject him, to reject his message, his sacrifice, his invitation to join God's family, we've got to know God does not relish the self-destruction brought on by the arrogance of people. He doesn't revel nor enjoy the agony and the sorrow borne by those who choose their own path, who choose their own way, those who forsake the message of God in favor of the things of this world, this problem of self-centeredness, which is at the very heart of our brokenness, breaks the heart of God, moves God to tears and sorrow, moved Jesus to tears and sorrow. As I said, I was reading this morning about the persecution of Christians in North Korea, and the publication that I read showed a picture of a North Korean classroom, and at the head of the North Korean classroom, very austere, there was nothing on the walls, a blackboard at the front, in this particular picture, nothing written on the blackboard, but above the blackboard were pictures of the leaders, the past and present leaders of, of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-un, the current leader. And the article said that the portraits of these venerated leaders in North Korea must be hung in all schools and in all homes. The reason that Christianity is despised in North Korea is because the dynastic family, the, the Kims will allow no threat to their leadership. The loyalty of the North Korean people must be to them First and foremost, even children are encouraged to, to inform on their disloyal parents. This is a self-centeredness on the part of the Kim family, on the order of a Hitler or a Stalin. One that is so great, it has absolutely no regard 
for life itself, no regard for the lives of others. The problem is, we look, we look at that and we go, oh, I agree 100%. We'll throw the Kims right in there with Hitler and, and Stalin. Glad I'm not in that group. The problem is, is we're all plagued with this same illness. We are all, apart from Christ, self-centered people who sacrifice our families, who will sacrifice our children, who will sacrifice our friends on altars of divorce or abortion or personal profit or gain or self-gratification or addiction, momentary pleasure. I mean, we do the same thing at so many points, even if it's just a, a momentary thing that we do. It's the self-centeredness within us that drives us to it. Without relationship with God, all we have is to live for ourselves. And the end of that living is destruction on some order. The end of that self-centered living is destruction. Ultimately, in the final analysis, our own destruction. I think of those more often now as I age, I think of those who reach the end of life only to look back upon the years that they've lived at the destruction that's been wrought by their selfish, self-centered living. To look at lives of children left in the wake, to see friendships broken, left in the wake, all because they wanted to live life on their terms. And in the moment, they didn't really care who else was sacrificed to that cause. I, I think about individuals that that's all they have at the at the end of life and Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem and he saw the future and he saw the destruction of families he saw the destruction of children he saw a people in exile from the land that God gave them all because they refused to turn to God and he wept and such is the heart of God and such is the heart of God still today. He looks at us at moments. Even those of us that have declared our discipleship of Jesus Christ. He looks at the foolish decisions that we make in moments when we say, God, I've got this. I'll take care of this. I don't need you to be involved in this. I want this done my way. Over against that call, the Lord needs it. Right now, the Lord needs your attention. No, God, I'm going to do this my way. No, no, the Lord needs you. He needs you now. He needs your voice. He doesn't need you to speak that thing that's welling up inside you that you feel like must be said. He doesn't need you to balance the scales of justice the way that you think they ought to be balanced. He doesn't need you to slash out at someone that's offended you in some way that you think they deserve. God needs you. He needs your attention. He needs your voice. He needs you to act in a certain way to represent him. He needs you.
there are people that I fear if they walked through the doors of this church and saw me as a pastor, they would go, man, can't believe he's a pastor. Not based on what he said to me the other day out in public when I didn't know he was a pastor. Just some chance meeting where someone wasn't living up to my expectations. And I had to let them know, you failed me. It was a miserable thing to do. It's simple stuff. Simple stuff. It's the living of our lives day in and day out. And when we act in ways that does not represent God well, we leave people in our way. You know, we act in ways demanding our own way, demanding things on our own terms. All the while, God's saying, hey, I need your attention. I need you. I need your mouth. I need your tongue. I need your ears. I need your actions right now. This is important. This person that you're interacting with doesn't know me. I mean, I, I don't know the people that I interact with in public. I don't know whether they know Jesus or not. My guess is, statistically, the vast majority of them are lost. And when I'm unhappy, I went, to the, I went to the drugstore the other day. They didn't have my prescriptions ready on time. They told me they'd be ready at noon. I got there at 1245. They're not ready yet. Why not? Why not? You told me 12. I waited till 1245. Why not? You want me to just go home and get in my car and keep driving back up here? You just give me a different time? You never have my prescriptions ready for me? Well, we've been trying to help other people. So you, you put other people in front of me? You mean there were other people that came in that needed more help than I needed? Were they dying and you had to fulfill, you had to fill their prescriptions before mine? You know what? How many more people are going to need help? Just give me 15 minutes. Well, what if more people need help in that 15 minutes? <laughs> I just go someplace and spend 15 minutes. I drove up here. You know, I'm just going to sit in the parking lot for 15 minutes. How do I know you'll have my prescriptions ready in 15 minutes? I mean, I wouldn't let her off the hook. And, and God's going, I need your attention. I need your, I need your voice. Stop. Stop. I got this, God. This, this needs to be done. These people need to understand. This is a customer service business. I'm a customer. Not a Christian now. I'm a customer. And so I'm an instructor. If that girl walked through the, the doors of the church this morning and saw me as the pastor, I mean, when we do things like that, we sever our ability to say, oh, and by the way, Jesus loves you. <laughs> I mean, I know it appears I don't. You may think I'm demanding, and, and I am, I am, and I'm, and I'm horribly broken. Forgive me. Jesus loves you. That boat sailed. I mean, that's, that chance is lost. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. I need your attention. I need you. I need your words. I need your lives. I need it all surrendered. If we're really going to make a difference, you know, are you one that follows a pattern of surrender? I want to. 
I fail so miserably so much of the time. I don't want to live my life that way. When the Lord says, I need, I want to say, it's yours, all of it, instead of demanding my own way. Are you living, endeavoring to follow a pattern of surrender? Are you struggling mightily with that problem of self-centeredness? Because that's what caused Jesus, that's what moved him to tears as he traveled down Mount Olivet and saw the city of Jerusalem knowing that when he said, I need, they would say, no way. No, no. Let me ask all of you to stand. Maybe you need to be on your knees this morning. Maybe, maybe you went to the same drugstore I went to. I don't know. We laugh about things. And there's, our failure is so frequent, it, it almost becomes humorous. But you know, we need to be weeping over our failures. We need to acknowledge them. We need to confess them. We need to name them for what they are. They are God calling to us, I need you, and us saying, not today, not now. No, I won't give you. I'm not fully surrendered to you. That pattern of surrender is not in place in my life. Maybe you just need to be on your knees confessing to God, God, I want to live a life that's patterned by my surrender to you, full and complete, all I have and all that I am, most especially my attention fixed on you, focused on you in all that I do. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never before put your faith in him, if you're not a disciple of him, you are, you are captive to your own desire, to your own will. You're captive to make known the things that you want. You're captive to letting people know when they've not fulfilled your expectations, you're captive to it. Because the only thing that pulls me back from that edge is the Spirit of God within me, saying, I need, I need you now. I need you now. Are you surrendered to me? If you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have no power to resist those urges, but you can begin to walk in the Spirit of God today if you'll choose discipleship. I'm going to be standing here at the front. If God is moving you to make a decision of any kind, the Lord's Spirit is here. If God is saying to you, I need your attention right now, I have something for you to do, then this would be a great time to say, I hear you, Lord. It's yours. It's yours. You have my attention. Whatever you require of me, it's yours. You respond to God this morning.